This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Richard Freeman. Richard is an author, teacher, and founder of the Yoga Workshop here in Boulder, Colorado, which is where Sounds True Studios are. His background includes Sufism, Zen, and Vipassana Buddhist practices. He's also a practitioner of Bhakti, Hatha, and Iyengar Yoga, and is also an internationally respected instructor of Ashtanga Yoga. Richard is the author of a new book, The Mirror of Yoga, and has created many audio learning programs with Sounds True, including The Yoga Matrix, Yoga Breathing, a program on yoga chants, and an instructional DVD series called The Ashtanga Yoga Collection. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Richard and I spoke about the paradox of self-reference and how it relates to the true goals of yoga practice, the discovery and breaking down of samskaras, and how yoga unites the opposing patterns within the body. Here's my conversation with Richard Freeman. I wonder, Richard, if we could start by you offering a chant, if you'd be willing maybe a chant that is appropriate at the beginning of some kind of teaching session. Okay. This is a Shantipata uh, from the Yajurveda that's used at the beginning of teaching, at the end of teaching. And it's a non-sectarian one. It's not theistic nor atheistic because it it's just talking about uh, may we together... Uh, be protected, may we together uh, have great uh, enthusiasm in our study, Uh, may we enjoy together, Uh, may our study be brilliant together, and then may we not hate each other. As a result of what we're going to be doing, (laughs) we're just communicating. And so it's just an emphasis on the idea of together. Sounds perfect. It's a nice chant. So I'll chant it. Hari Om Sahana Vavatu Sahana Bhunaktu Sahaviryam karavavahai Tejasvi navadhi tamastu Mavid vishavahai Om Shanti 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 Beautiful, thank you. You start your new book, The Mirror of Yoga, by actually talking about listening. Mm -hmm. 
Listening is a central key in yoga. And I don't think most people would think listening has anything to do with yoga. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, this is actually a traditional point of view that yoga begins with shravanam or hearing or esoteric yoga begins with listening to nada um, so listening is the ability to let things be because you're uh, just kind of letting them metaphorically float in space allowing them to unfold and to manifest in whatever way they are. And that's what you do when you listen to something. So you temporarily suspend your presuppositions. Um, you give them space. Um, and in the yoga tradition, they say you're giving them akash, or non-obstructive radiant space, in which things can just unfold themselves to reveal themselves for what they actually are. And so this is what anyone can do this, at least for a few moments. And then it's the same thing you would do in mature or advanced yoga practice, except you can sustain it a little bit longer. It's just listening. And how might that apply to what most people think of as yoga, which is you know, twisting their body into some kind of shape? Where's the listening <laughs> there? Yeah, so that would apply to getting people to uh, slow down and then in the process of twisting their body or doing whatever they're going to do, um, to observe it more carefully so that all the things that come up that you squeeze out of the body in twisting it, you're able to feel them very deeply um, so it would be sensations, emotions, feelings, and then all the different uh, thought stories and opinions that come up as you do that to your body. And if you're grounded in listening, then you can observe them mindfully as they come up. And that way, even though you're engaged in a process of trying to make your body do something, you you see the presuppositions of that. In other words, you see, I'm playing a kind of a game, um, though perhaps, you know, a sincere game, which is practicing, and I'm going to, say, stand on my head or I'm going to do a sun salutation. Uh, you see that as part of, seeing that as part of the practice, meaning, why am I doing this? You know, why am I practicing? And if you, then you also can see the various layers of your motives. Well, I'm practicing to feel good. Uh, I'm practicing to become, you know, stronger or to become more beautiful or to, I'm practicing to understand who I am or what the world is. And then you're able to see your mind working and uh, giving space just to those thoughts. So it's, listening is always there in the background or giving space. Listening is a metaphor for space, or my, which is a metaphor for mindfulness, or just intelligent awareness of whatever is. Now, you called your new book The Mirror of Yoga. Mm -hmm. In what way is yoga a mirror? Mm. 
Well, it allow a, a clear mirror as a metaphor is something that's going to allow you to see um, yourself. Indeed, if there is such a thing, uh, and, and all the things we believe ourselves to be, like our our different mental processes, our emotions, uh, different parts of our body we think are us. And so yoga allows, it gives you a clear vision of them as if reflected in a mirror. But again, the metaphor of a mirror is then perhaps you're not the image in the mirror. And so again, it's a way of allowing observation. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, Richard, I've known you for a long time here in Boulder, in Boulder, Colorado, where that's we both true. live. Been... Yeah, and, and I've always thought of you as sort of a local god. And what I mean by that is uh, just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful yoga teacher, really in a class all your own. And I mm-hmm. think you have a way of articulating the true purpose and process of yoga mm. that is very unique and really gets to the depths of what yoga is. And so that's some of what I'd love for you to share with our listeners, what you think the true goal of yoga is and the process. How does it work? How does it enable us to reach that goal? Mm. I know it's a big question, but yeah, I know, I know it's tall order, but I think you can do it, man. <laughs> Let me take a breath for a second here. Yes, please. I don't know if I can articulate, you know, the process or the goal very well. Um, And I don't know whether it's a blessing or a curse, but I'm very much aware of the kind of slippery and paradoxical nature of what I'm trying to work with here, which is me or my body or my mind or your mind, your body, or this whole, whatever this is that we're experiencing. Um, I'm aware that it's very wonderful and slippery. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, like a wet bar of soap or uh, I think Gary Snyder had the metaphor of an avocado pit that as soon as you know you can hold yeah. it in your hand but as soon as you squeeze it it just pops right out because it's slippery and so I see that kind of fundamental self-reference paradox um, in almost all the different aspects of yoga as the goal of yoga uh, being this experience that actually we're already having. But, and again, paradoxically, we're, though we're having this experience, we're not really experiencing what we're experiencing because our mind is always making a representation, a thought or an image, even about what we're experiencing, and it cannot stay on subject. It just moves on or spins on. And so... It's very difficult to have an experience of what is right in front of you. Uh, There's a saying um, that the truth, which in the the Vedantic tradition or the Vedic is called Brahman, 
that the truth is pratyaksha, right in front of your eyes, and it's hidden right there. Um, and so one of the old stories is that the gods, not wanting human beings to be enlightened, because the gods are entertained by human beings. It's just like when we watch you know, a series on television, we find it you know, engrossing, entertaining, uh, sometimes maddening. And if all of the characters were to become enlightened, they would become a very boring show. I can't imagine a more boring show than... Um, and so you have all of these... And so the story is that the human beings are the plaything, or the, the playthings are the cattle of the gods. And so the gods, a long time ago, decided we have to hide the truth from human beings and... Where can you hide it? Because human beings are so clever. They're these brilliant talking monkeys. Um, and they have these brilliant minds, which are, and if they, particularly if they do meditation practice and yoga practice, they become more and more brilliant and insightful. So where are we going to hide it? And so the only place they could find that human beings would never look is pratyaksha, or in front of the eye as what is actually rising in the present moment is the Brahman. And so this is the challenge of practice. Um, because, well, then immediately you think, well, what is rising? And my mind goes, well, let me look around and let me see what is arising in the present moment. And then we think, oh, it's hot, it's cold, it's thick, it's thin, it buzzes, it doesn't buzz, it's changing, you know, and we're, again, just trying to overlay a theory on the immediate experience. And so a lot of yoga begins when you start to see your mind doing that on itself, as if it were trying to reach, like the hand just tries to reach around and grab itself, or the eye tries to turn itself inside out to see itself, which is, of course, impossible. And it really begins when you get a sense of that kind of mysterious self-reference paradox lying at the very heart of the big questions in life, like, who am I? What happens when I die? What is the universe? Why is the universe? All of those great questions are, are built in self-reference paradox. And so you're saying... Because of this self-reference paradox, it's going to be difficult for you to answer this question because how could you as the person... <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it's absolutely impossible to answer the question. However... Thank you, Richard. Um, <laughs> we can really use words and use language to kind of metaphorically circle around it and get... And the words can actually work. Uh, there's no guarantee that they'll work. Um, but you can get remarkably close. Let's go for it. Okay. It's just like if I want to describe something in nature um, that's beautiful. Uh, say I were a combination of a biologist and a poet. And so I start describing, you know, the, the beauty of some insect's wing and the fine hairs, and I start going into all the different processes that you know I've discovered through my microscope and then through my biochemistry. 
and describing and describing and describing, um, you know, the, the wing of a fly or something. And none of those descriptions are the wing of a fly. And they can you can fill encyclopedias with those descriptions, but the fact that there's a wing on a fly is just like mind-boggling. It's stunning, and it's stunningly beautiful if you were actually to get a, a good look at it. And and because, you know, we as humans are grounded simultaneously in the mind, but then the mind is grounded in what in yoga we would say is prana, or immediate experience. We're grounded in the body, we're grounded in, you know, the this larger shared experience. Um, we kind of already know that. And a lot of the communication is uh, getting people to feel what they already are feeling, or kind of understanding what they already understand, to just see the, the miracle of, you know, say, a fly's wing. So we could say then that the goal of yoga is something that can't be said definitively, but we can circle around it. Can, and the and, process of yoga, how it works, the actual process, we can also we circle, can circle around. circle around. And this is, again, one of the paradoxes. You can't talk about it. It's, let's say, it's too stunning. Um, it, you can't grasp it with the mind. However, there's nothing else worth talking about. Um, however, we do have to talk about practical things. And if we talk about practical things, or what we say, ordinary things, really intelligently, uh, the, that thing that we can't talk about kind of shines through and becomes a communal experience for everybody. But unfortunately, or fortu I think fortunately, you can't tie it down. You can't nail it, um, you know, with the term God or the term Brahman or any concept. Though you can get close, but then it kind of slips out. It spills out over the edges of whatever. I'm going to take system. a different approach here for Good. a moment. Yeah. Uh, in a yoga class, I once heard you say that the true yoga teacher the true guru is the shashumna, nadi, oh. the central channel of the body, the central axis in the body. Yeah. And I'd be curious, first of all, if you could say more about that. How is that the true sure. yoga teacher? And then yeah. also help give people a feeling, a sense of what the central channel in the body feels like through your description. Yeah. So as I recall, what I've said in class is you know, because we start with an invocation to the guru of gurus, it's it's a chant that's Im implying that, you know, there's one teacher with an endless number of forms, and that we have direct access to that teacher uh, at the core of our heart. And, of course, the core of the heart is imagined to be as part of a long central tube that goes through the rest of the core of the body, you know, starting at the middle of the pelvic floor, the perineum, and going up through the roots of the navel, through the core of the heart, through the throat, behind the root of the palate, 
up out of the top of the head. And the central channel is imagined to be empty, hollow like a reed, um, and that in the central channel is where um, the true guru is. And or you live, or the if you're a theist, that's where God lives, or the, the Buddha nature is in the central channel. And that way people um, don't have to project that archetype so strongly out onto their instructor or their teacher. And that'll actually allow them to love their teacher more because their teacher is um, a human. You know, everyone you know is going to have human teachers at some point. And if you can appreciate them as human, you can actually love them more. But if you have to put them on a pedestal of the ideal, you know, this, this person is perfect and they're omniscient and they're omnipotent, uh, then you don't really have a relationship with them anymore. You know, it's more like a, a economic function. You know, I need something from them. Um, and then a good teacher, even if they've been placed on a pedestal, um, is always pointing out the real teacher. You know, just like a parent would with a child. You know, at some point, the child has to make their own decisions, and hopefully the parent has instilled some decent values in the child. So the way that traditionally one can access the feeling, the central channel, even if you're not, you know, a seasoned practitioner, is um, through the back of the palate, or what's called the talumula, or the root of the palate. And this is something that automatically opens this root of the palate um, whenever you feel um, extremely satisfied, as in having an, an aesthetic experience, an experience of very fine beauty, uh, you release, you go, ah, and that tends to release the palate. Another thing that's done in mantra practice is just the syllable ah, uh, which is kind of the foundational sound in language systems, because it's it's kind of an unarticulated sound, ah. Um, the tongue becomes quiet, the uh, soft palate where the uvula is becomes quiet, and it's almost as if your ears open. So it would be the what you if you really wanted to listen, you could just say, ah. And if you were listening and understanding things, you might say, ah. Or perhaps it could become a little more embellished with aha. <laughs> Uh-huh. And so a, a sense of aesthetic pleasure, the experience of beauty, and you know whether it's like poetic beauty or you know visual beauty, acoustic, you know musical beauty, or just seeing the beauty in mathematics or the beauty in you know your friends, um, all of these different things will open up. And you'll have this feeling of aesthetic satisfaction. And if you can stay with it long enough, you'll see that it's organized, that your body is responding and you're feeling it 
not only intellectually or sensually, but you're feeling it through all the different layers of your body as if they're all connected by a tube. And another way to feel that is kindness or compassion. And, uh, you know, those rare moments when you actually appreciate another being without any, of, without any strings attached, in which you're not thinking about yourself, oh, here I am being compassionate, or here I am being kind, but you actually really, they kind of catch you off guard, and non-self-consciously you just go, you, you feel kind of an identity with another being. Uh, whether it's a human being or a bug or a whale or a dog or and that's compassion and that opens the central channel and you again you start to feel from the central channel through all of the different layers of the body all of eventually through all of the different ways that the mind is habituated, you start to feel this kind of joy. So what's happening, Richard, whether it's a moment of tremendous beauty or a moment of spontaneous compassion, mm -hmm. that the subtle body would actually respond in that way? What's, go what's the mechanism? What's going mm -hmm. on? The different schools of yoga um, seem to agree that the mind, which is called the citta, and prana, which is the way that sensation is organized through the body and the mind are two ends of the same stick. So there's a physiology or a pranic pattern to an ecstatic state of mind. And so there is a body-mind connection that way. And so yoga just exploits that connection. And so we start to experience, you know, one of these finer states of mind. And there are endless varieties of fine states of mind because you can never repeat one with exactly the same content. Um, but you start to notice its physiological qualities. And so hatha yoga or... Now, hatha yoga, the, the yoga that deals with primarily pranayama and posture and mudra and kundalini awakening, uh, tries to create the physiology of an insightful state of mind. And that, that way the body and the prana help to support your focus or your concentration on whatever that indescribable fine thing is that you're discovering. So if you need to really listen, I need to say you're listening to Mozart and I there's one phrase that, you know, is just beautiful and you'd have to concentrate so your body gets ready. Let me concentrate. And so you you know, a musician will do all kinds of things to concentrate. And so the yoga practitioner does the same thing. And so in yoga practice we're learning and we're cultivating the sensitivity in the body um, so that the whole body can participate in you know, our mental focus. 
So the releasing of the root of the palate in traditional yoga is extremely relaxing initially through the whole body. And in that relaxation, the metaphor is of the falling down of prana, or some schools would say shakti, from the back of the palate, of the root of the palate, through the whole body. And so it's almost like a fine comb going through your sense fields as you relax, and this prana falls down, or it's the release of apana, and it eventually ends up on the earth. And earth in the yoga body is the pelvic floor. And this is kind of where the water goes down and ah, and then you can relax once you're truly seated on the earth. And then the earth responds, and it's almost like a seed grows from the center of the earth, and it returns back up the central path to where it came from. Now there's a, a quote that I wrote down from the Mirror of Yoga that says, yoga unites opposite patterns in the nervous system mm. in order to open up the core of the body for our observation. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's what you're getting at here in terms of introducing this idea of apana falling down and prana rising up. Mm -hmm. Could you say, say more about this, this idea of the opposite patterns and their right. uniting? Well, yeah. So we have top to bottom opposite patterns, prana and apana. Apana is, behaves like water. Uh, it goes down and it contracts, and it's said to govern exhaling and squeezing things out of the body. Um, and so we try to release the apana, which is our kind of held tensions when we first start practicing. Um, and this is because, you know, we hold our thoughts in our body, and in, particularly in our head. If we, or if you work at a computer, you're holding it in your neck and your face and your eyes. And just to, again, say, ah, or in some way have some kind of way to begin the practice which drops the apana, and you, you initially become quite composed and relaxed. And eventually it will drop all the way through the whole system. Um, we'll take any kind of dropping to begin with. Uh, its complementary opposite is the same energy. It's all made of the same stuff, but it, there's a pattern that rises up and spreads out. And this is the stimulation of the sense fields. Um, and this is the pattern which is called prana. And it governs inhaling, and it tends to go from this sense of relaxed, natural unity out into the many. And so it'll sprout ideas, stories, fantasies. Uh, and if the mind isn't trained well, as you stimulate your sense fields, you start to see in the sense field sense objects, just like we ordinarily do. We see things in the world around us, and normally we see them as somewhat separate from their backgrounds. And so prana is this rising up and going out. But stimulating that, we tend to get lost in the individual branches of the stories of the mind. And so, again, you have to drop the apana in order to kind of let go of all that sense of grasping 
of form and just return to just being here. Ah, nowhere to go. No one needs to go anywhere because there's no one to go anywhere. And there's nowhere to go. That's the realization that might occur with prana, but then the or with the apana, and but then the prana is that which loves to create stories, becoming, you know, I am so and so, and I need to attain enlightenment, or I need to, you know, go out and save the world or save other beings, and these are beautiful ideas, um, and they are associated with. You know, at least the creation of a theoretical self or subject, and then all these objects, time and space, and it really isn't our personal mind that's doing this. It's just the way that the world is. So you have that kind of those two opposites. The prana needs to drop so you can have a direct experience of the dissolution of the forms and patterns, categories, ideas that. Thrive and unfold on the tree of the prana. So you need both. And then the idea of opposites are whenever you have a um, an attitude or a theory about the world, um, your intelligence um, or your prana in the background cr creates a kind of opposite to it. And so, in my say, in my ego structure, I create the idea. Well, I'm a good guy, and then I, my mind or the unconscious mind, the unconscious intelligence, projects bad guy out, and I don't realize that good guy and bad guy are interdependent concepts. And so, in my body, uh, to do yoga, I have to find the complementary opposite for each. Um, ideal pattern or idealized pattern that the mind has made and grasped onto, I find its complementary opposite pranically, and it's embedded in the sensation of the body, and I have to find discover their interdependence. And then when I do that, I can let them go. And so this is the idea of the chakras. Um, you have to balance, say, the, the front sections of your pelvic floor uh, with the back sections of the pelvic floor. But you'll find that uh, they're conditioned just from your life experience. So you have ways of being in the world where you um, believe yourself to be certain things and you are scared to death of other things and your experiences, particularly through childhood, have reinforced these samskaras or these patterns. And so the processes of yoga are a way of discovering my biases, um, and then balancing them or discovering their opposites and then letting it go. And in letting go, I can return to really what's important. And what was important was earlier on held in a container. And then what happens is that what is important always spills out over the borders of whatever container I make. And my container might be an image of God, or it might be a political doctrine, which, when it initially arose, was appropriate and useful, but then was insufficient to really contain the whole complex reality 
and so I have to let go of it. And so the process of yoga is a way of, you know, seeing through something in order to let go of it. Okay, I want to unpack a couple of the things you said. You mentioned this term, samskaras, Hmm. and I'd like you to say a little bit more about that, what they are, how they form, and then how hatha yoga helps them deform, if that's the right word. (laughs) Yeah. So the word samskara just means to put together. So it's things that have been put together that don't necessarily belong together. So, for example, say, um, as a child, I fall down and hurt my knee um, on the playground, and everybody laughs at me. And it's a common experience. And so, from then on, um, there's a particular pattern associated with my knee that I scraped, and that those pattern lines go through the body that I associate with being laughed at. Um, and that so that is part of my memory system, that samskara. And samskaras, you know, they're good samskaras because there's, there are a lot that have come built in with the human body that are necessary for survival. Like the way we smell certain things and certain odors are repulsive because they're associated with poisonous things. But then there are a lot of more of our more personal samskaras, which um, have been survival mechanisms, but then they have prevented us from feeling uh, certain realms of the full spectrum of sensation and feeling through the body. And then certain, I, in, intellectually, we cannot go to certain areas and imagine certain things because of samskaras. And so our imaginations are stunted by this sticking together of uh, sensation, feeling, and experience. And our physical bodies are stunted by these samskaras. And so much of the work of yoga is discovering samskaras and then holding them or holding the sensation patterns or the thought patterns um, as if they were objects of meditation or holding them as if they were uh, not reacting to them in the normal way. And in this way we can experience the sensations and feelings or the prana pattern uh, as being not necessarily associated with the thought patterns that we'd always believe them. To so be, we're, we're experiencing uh, the energy, but we're disconnecting yeah, so experience it. the sensations without the mind running off with the memories and thoughts. And so this gradually deconditions the prana body so you're able to f- experience all kinds of levels of sensations in the body you know, through the five senses and through combinations of the five senses. And then in your mind, you're able, you become more flexible in your intelligence and you're able to imagine all kinds of things without seeing your, your ego invested in them. And so it's highly stimulating 
and freeing. And so the whole principle of samskara is, again, the basic principle of getting the map confused with the territory, um, which is the basic ignorance that yoga hopes to see through, in which my mind makes a symbol for things, and that way I can think more quickly. But the symbol is never the thing that it symbolizes. Now, you said something interesting, that some samskaras are necessary, like the the sense of smell, mm. and, you know, I don't want to smell something terrible and, yeah. you know, ingest it. Now, I always was under the impression that samskaras were conditioning and, and something that I wanted to unbind or, un, yeah. you know... Un- or something you want to see through. See through. Now, is, is, is yeah. that... So that's true because with you, all Because you do want to have memory and associations, like when you're driving down the street. The fact that I know that in this country I should drive on the right side of the road. Yes. You want to keep those. But you also have to see that they're contingent, that they're merely, you know, conditional and depending on context, circumstance. Okay, that that makes sense. So now to link this back to the way people think of Hatha Yoga, I'm doing these, as we said, Mm -hmm. twists and turns and contortions, etc. How in that process am I seeing through samskaras? Potentially. Potentially, yeah. If you're doing the yoga practices um, in the context of mindfulness practice. And so traditionally, I would say, if you're doing hatha yoga within the context of raja yoga, meaning you're doing it in in order to really see, um, then the, the practices are used to kind of uncover the nature of your mind. So the practices help to expose your mind. Uh, and they have they have a lot of other benefits to them, uh, but those are not the main point or the main benefit. Like you become healthier by uh, you know balancing the body, improving the circulation. All of these things they do, but ultimately the body is going to die anyway, so it's not the main point. Um, however, the practices can all be perverted in the ego function of the mind can co-opt all of the yoga and one can start practicing in order to you know become a more solid entity which is completely understandable the the ego function is likely to co-opt you know any kind of spiritual or meditative or religious discipline and then what's common is one one day through maybe getting feedback from others, they discover, oh, I've been doing that. Um, and the idea is then just, oh, to see that, to see that, you know, this is the way that the mind works, is that it uh, it naturally tries to reduce it to a kind of materialism. And this is norm- this is the normal way the mind works. And so given the right context, given, you know, a... a proper lineage or a proper teacher um, one is these one is going to experience their own mind doing the most ridiculous things uh, with the yoga and this is an essential part of the practice 
is to be able to witness the worst things in your own mind um, and then to see them change. One of the programs that you've created with Sounds True is on yoga breathing, mm. the practice of pranayama. And we've been talking a little bit about this union of opposite forces. Previously in our discussion, you were talking about apana and prana and how we can work with both this rising and falling energy. And I'm curious if you can connect that more to the breath and the practice of pranayama and this union of opposites that can be experienced. Mm -hmm. Within the, the schools of yoga that I've studied, pranayama is really the central practice. Even though asana is initially emphasized, asana becomes the gateway into a really fine pranayama practice. And so we try to practice pranayama as we're doing asana and then also have a what would say a separate practice of pranayama and so this is because all of the sensations and thoughts are mediated through prana so as you think every thought you think there's a response in the sensation patterning in the body and through practice you become very sensitive to that so Practically every proposition my mind makes um, rebounds off the pelvic floor and rebounds to the different layers along the central axis. And so you're kind of getting feedback from your deeper or more subtle body all the time about your thinking. And the way to access those feelings is very easy, easily done through the breathing because prana is much more than breathing but prana does have direct control. Prana and apana have direct control over breathing, inhaling and exhaling. And through it you can start to access how you're thinking and how you're feeling. Um, and though advanced pranayama practices where you're deliberately stretching your breath out to see what's there and then holding the breath to get particular responses uh, is something that you have to be prepared to do and you have to be trained to do so that you don't go crazy or we'd say blow a gasket. Um, just simple pranayama practices or beginning pranayama practices everyone can do because everyone's already breathing. And so just beginning with mindfulness of the breath to uh, very simple um, ujjayi breathing where you create a whispering sound with your breath so that you can easily extend it so you're in a very pleasant way breathing more deeply. Uh, these are accessible to everyone. And in doing that, you start to uncover feelings and thought patterns um, that normally you're not dealing with in your everyday distracted, discursive mind. Uh, you're not really dealing with how you're really feeling about things because you're, you're playing a role in the, your normal conscious day and you've got to do this, you have to do that. 
and perhaps your intelligence way in the background has doubts or has more enthusiasm. And so just the practice of pranayama really brings feelings and inspiration or doubt right up to the surface so that you can observe it and feel it and process it. I'm wondering, as a gift to our listeners, if you'd be able to take us through a brief introductory mm. component of pranayama, just mm. a brief example to give people a sense of connecting with their breath in the way that you're describing. Well, I can try. Yeah. So this can be done seated. I would recommend that someone sits straight in a comfortable way. So if Padmasana is comfortable, you can do that, or just a cross-legged form, or sitting in a chair with the feet on the floor. Whatever is not going to create pain in the joints of the body. And that's basically the first requirement for pranayama, is that you have a proper asana, or a proper seat for practicing. And then we can start. Um, and the way to start is really to soften your eyes, because the eyes are really intimately a part of the brain. And as we think about things and as we worry about things or strive for things, the eyes are always flickering about, and there's often a kind of tension in the eyes. So we can begin by letting the eyes be steady. And for some people, if the eyes are open and they just find something kind of neutral, a uh, kind of non-object object out in front of them, just a visual pattern, the eyes can rest there. Um, other people find it easier to close the eyes. And then as the eyes are steady and soft, the mind starts to focus. And as you focus the mind, a kind of tension arises in the body that you immediately let go of through the palate. And so this releases tension in the mouth, uh, activity in the tongue, and then as if you were smiling or as if you were compassionate, um, the upper back of the palate, the soft palate, releases. And this is a way of kind of suspending the language function or dropping the apana, as we said earlier. And then the technique that's used in ujjayi pranayama is very helpful, and that is you make a very soft aspirin sound with the breath, as you do in whispering. And so, actually, it's the vocal cords that close a tiny bit, so you get a very smooth aspirin sound with both the inhale and the exhale. And it'll sound to some people like the wind in the trees. Um, other people think it sounds like water flowing through pipes. 
And if you concentrate on the sound, automatically you'll start to deepen the breath, you'll start to smooth it out. And the first stage is to find a kind of pleasure or delight just in the breath itself. And so there's no need to stretch it a lot, although stretching will automatically occur when you listen to it. But there's a kind of delight just in the sensations themselves that are associated with breathing. And then after a few minutes of, what we'd say, pleasurable breathing, we can start to notice the ends of the breaths. So the crest of the inhale, when the inhale comes to its fullest point, the muscles in the throat move a tiny bit. And if you release your palate as the throat moves, as if you were saying, ah, then the awareness drops from over the head back down through the palate into the heart as you exhale. And so exhaling becomes a way of meditating on or relishing the residual sensations from the inhale. And so this way, keeping the heart or the central line of the body open as you exhale, the end of the exhale, even if it's not a complete exhale, though occasionally you do make it all the way down, the end of the exhale will create a kind of closing pattern in the abdominal wall and the pelvic floor. And so when we inhale, we try to draw our attention down under the belly so that we can stay in touch with the residual grounding pattern of the exhale as we fill back up inhaling. And so in this way, the inhaling pattern is drawn through as you would pull a thread through the eye of a needle the inhaling pattern is drawn through the seed point of the exhaling pattern. And then by keeping your back of your palate released, the exhale pattern is a way of allowing the seed point of the inhale in the heart to radiate out throughout the whole exhale. And so this is the basic pattern of pranayama where you take the, during the movement of the inhale, you're really concentrating on the residue of the exhale. And during the movement of the exhale, you're concentrating on the residue of the inhale. And since they're two ends of the same stick, uh, they're naturally linked together. And this has a very fine effect on the mind, you know, at all of its stages. And it's just a matter of practicing, and then it naturally becomes finer and smoother and more precise. Thank you, Richard.
You're welcome. You said it's uh, just a matter of practicing, which brings me to a question. You've been now practicing yoga for four decades? Over four decades. Yeah. Though I, I wonder, you know, maybe... I'm kind of practicing, practicing, but soon I hope to actually take up the discipline. Well, what do you mean? It. What do you mean by that? Well, it's almost like always returning to the beginning, because of the it's you know the mind likes to create it as oh you're going somewhere, you know, yeah. up to heaven or some exalted place, when in fact just getting back to the kind of zero point of the present moment is the most profound and satisfying feeling in which you're not really there. It's just like everything else is there, but you're not there. It's such a relief. And so I hope to get back any day now. <laughs> and that's the beginning of the practice. So right in the present moment, then you start over again. Because any kind of edifice you build from practicing, oh, I am so accomplished, or I am so this, I am so that. That's just a, a house of cards that it's going to get knocked over. And so I hope hand, to start any moment now. On the one hand, of course I know what you're saying, but I yeah. mean, on the other hand, there's some sense, and this is what I'm curious about, that over these four decades there's been some flowering or unfolding or greater depth of realization, something like that. And I'm curious mm -hmm. what you might say about that. How you might map it, if you would, if you had to, since I'm asking you to. Yeah, I notice you know, a gradual um, easing in myself, you know, of suffering. You know, that it's easier for me to recognize patterns that my own mind makes and then occasionally to let go of those patterns. Um, but traditionally, um, the path is mapped out as going over the course of endless numbers of lifetimes. In order to keep the mind practicing, uh, we, we're trained to always look at ourselves as beginners. Because it's very dangerous to achieve some exalted state and then to give up paying attention. And so I like to keep practicing and saying. And so traditionally, if one were to think, oh, well, I've been practicing for, say, 42 years now. Um, you know, that's nice, but at the rate I'm going, maybe, you know, 42,000 more lifetimes, I'll start to understand this. And that's a way of showing an appreciation for the profundity or the depth of what this actually is. And then perhaps if you had a deeper taste of what actually is, you might ex expand that to, well, 42,000, that's nothing. Maybe 42 million more years of practice. And then through practicing, you start to say, wow, this is just absolutely astonishing. Maybe 42 billion more lifetimes. 
and I'll get it. And that even that proposition is exciting. So the um, sense of being a beginner is no longer um, something that the ego tries to squirm out of. But you know, I'm willing to spend however long it takes doing it because the process itself is exciting. Just doing a little bit of pranayama and a little bit of mindfulness practice is thrilling. And who knows where it all leads to. Um. Well, Richard, I want to talk to you again on Insights at the Edge. I hope I have the opportunity to do so. There's a lot. Well, I hope there, we there's can. many more things I'd like to talk to you about. But I just want to end with this one question, which is our, our program's called Insights at the Edge. And I'm curious for you, here you've talked about beginning, 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 but what would you say is your quote-unquote edge? An edge of discovery, understanding, confusion perhaps, mm. anything. My edge is or something that my mind keeps returning to, almost like a puzzle. And it's in the contemporary yoga world, it's, you know, this puzzle of there being so many um, schools and attitudes that are really seem to be competing with each other. Um, and how I can and how I can teach people, you know, the, the, kind of basic absurdity of how we divide ourselves or how we create you know our school of thought or our own personal religion um, even though it's inevitable that we do that how we can better understand that process in ourselves and in our neighbors so we can reconnect you know or let go of it and uh it's almost like I, I, I see this kind of stupidity arising in myself, but I, you know, when you read the newspaper and you read about political things, it's the same stupidity going on. And then you start to see what's going on in the contemporary yoga world, uh, which is simultaneously brilliant synthesis because there's so much available to us now of so many different traditions that are fine traditions. And yet our human tendency to be stupid about it and to try to create, you know, our own true way. That, mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, our natural ego functioning, working. And uh, it's embarrassing. I see it in myself. Um, it's still there. And... Uh, but you're going you're to have the best method of breaking down all dogmas and <laughs> fundamentalism and division. Nice. You'll be the number one best method. Just a joke there, <laughs> the, the best method, you know, yeah. that I can sell it and yeah. take over the world with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the mind is, you know, it's a jujitsu artist. It'll just take everything from behind and flip it over. And it's, it's kind of thrilling, you know, to be in predicament you know, like this and, uh, but I think we get we get by with you know communicating with others you know seeing that everybody else is in the same predicament this 
Now, we started with a chant, and you said that it was traditionally a chant that could be done at the beginning and, and the end. end. So I wonder, would you, would you we'll be chant willing? We'll again. Yeah, thank you. Arium Sahana Vavatu Sahanao Bunaktu Sahaviriam Karavavahai Tejasvi Navati Tamastu Ma vidveshavahai Om Shanti 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 Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much, Tammy. Today I've been speaking with Richard Freeman. He's the author of a new book called The Mirror of Yoga from Shambhala Publications. And he's also created four different programs with Sounds True. The Yoga Matrix, which is a six-CD series on the body as a gateway to freedom. And The Yoga Matrix, the audio program, became the seed of the book, The Mirror of Yoga. Also a two-CD program on yoga breathing, on the art of pranayama, and an instructional two-CD program on yoga chants. These are chants that allow you to deepen your yoga practice. And additionally, we have a collection of three DVDs of yoga instruction with Richard called the Ashtanga Yoga Collection. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks everyone for listening.